Good evening. Welcome to the third episode of the Eurasia Center Wantcast. After a, in my opinion, successful episode on uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, we will be discussing the two. How do you how do you want to describe Russia and China, Nick, in their relation to the Western world? The dynamic duo of dynamic duo let's just leave it there the, 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 <laughs> dynamic duo of dynamism that is how we're going to describe russia and china uh interesting countries to very different polities but also as nick will demonstrate to us over the course of the episode uh closer and uh tighter knit than one might think uh i am of course am casey chambers uh and here is nick how's it going nick good i'm nick klein the co-host of the wonk cast thank you all right excited to take you through the the journey of uh you know soviet union and the sino-soviet split and to today and how you know everything is how everything has worked out because these let's face it is if we're dealing with eurasia you can't talk about eurasia without talking about the two the two big countries that really call the shots in their neighborhood, and that is Russia and China. Okay, well, let's start in 1945. World War II has just ended. Chiang Kai-shek is the nominal leader of China, and let's start tracing this history. So, yeah, uh, obviously everyone knows the... C, well, as it was known back then, colloquially as the CPC, now known as the CCP, whatever. It's the same, same body, same organization, uh, wins the Chinese Civil War. And that essentially means for Russia, under Joseph Stalin, that it has a so possibly, this is the interesting part, possibly a communist ally on its southern border. But as we get in, to and it's one thing we know uh, that always happens with uh, humans. It's that we always find a way to differentiate, differentiate ourselves. And that happens among the communist states as well. So basically what you get is the Sino-Soviet split because you have basically Mao, Mao Zedong, who has the whole, I mean, he basically has a whole political philosophy after himself Maoism versus, uh, well, Joseph Stalin, who also has a political uh, philosophy as for himself, Stalinism. And what do you get? Well, these two were trying to balance it out for a while. Stalin dies. Then you have Nikita Khrushchev. And then I believe by, what what would you say, the mid to late, well, certainly by the mid-60s, Things are. Yeah, the the relationship was on the tumble. Uh, China was able to eke out nuclear weapons from the Soviets in exchange for uh, massive amounts of grain, but they were already starting to be, be fractures in that relationship. The Soviets were consistently pushing China towards uh, industrialization in their five-year plans, whereas uh, Mao China under Mao was going chose to go for agrarian approach. Um, Exactly. So by the time that there was the uh, Sino-Soviet border clashes, the relationship was shot. uh, The relationship was at rock bottom, essentially. Um, So um, 
that kind of takes us to the uh, the Cold War experience for uh, you know China and Russia. Uh, you could say the Soviet Union and China, but if we're you know if we're if we're talking entities here, it would specifically be China and Russia. Um, so. Um, I think the next thing we could do is talk about the end of the Cold War and how that uh, leads to the grievances, shall we say, of uh, China and Russia with the, mm -hmm. with the West. Um, now, you may know there was something that happened on June 4th, 1989. Uh, it's called the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Um, and at that point, you know, it, it was not known whether or not the CCP was going to possibly collapse. Um, and this is, you know, it's all happening in, in, you know, China's capital, Beijing. Uh, you know, chaos in the capital. Uh, it, it was a, you know, it was, it was, it was a crisis for, for weeks at that point uh, before, you know, finally, you know, before what happened finally happened. Okay, so I, I do have to quickly stop you there. Um, yeah, yes, I will acknowledge that there was certainly chaos at Tiananmen Square, uh, perpetuated uh, by the People's Liberation Army. Uh, Harkening back to episode one, a little, little concerned about your description of chaos in the capital, all uh, the U.S. Capitol riots, which were, was an entirely different uh, situation. Oh, it was totally no, no, don't, don't go, don't. Yes, get me that wrong. is that is not a parallel that we are drawing here. That we are asking uh, don't, listeners don't to draw. Yeah, uh, the, the Eurasia Center strongly supports. Uh, don't get me individual wrong. movements that's for democracy not, yeah. and human rights. Yeah, that's not. Uh, yeah, no. What happened in January sixth versus what happened on June fourth are totally different. But let's uh, let, let's get back on track. So um, uh, Tiananmen Square happens. Uh, obviously, the the CCP maintains control of China. A couple months later, the Soviet Union but before starts to break away. Soviet Union collapses. There's something else that happened on June fourth, Casey. Do you know what happened? On June fourth, uh, yeah. which June fourth? In 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 Russia. In the same same year, same day. I actually, off the top of my head, do not know. Was it a color revolution? So, mass death on Soviet rails. Soviet Union's deadliest post-war train disaster occurred 30 years ago, claiming 575 lives and injuring 800. And that's just according to the official figures. And it was caused by a powerful gas explosion that had leaked from a nearby pipeline, estimated to be the equivalent of 10,000 tons of TNT and the two trains carrying vacationers to and from black sea, sea resorts and school children were affected. And I think the parallel here is essentially that, um, well, you know, Russia and China were, uh, both had huge issues in their countries. This, you know, we still do. Uh, but you know, it was, it was clear that, China was trying to find its way and the Soviet Union was just in disrepair. And from there on, um, you know, you, you have these two countries that are essentially both struggling 
in one sense or another. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, most people don't know about that disaster, by the way, not, and especially not that it happened the same day as Tiananmen Square. Um, I I will admit there would Tiananmen Square definitely overshadows that event in history. I yeah, also think even it's important though I to think note that the trajectories of both countries are going in different directions. we're still going in different directions, correct? Yes, because Tiananmen Square was a legitimate uh, threat to the rule of communist power in China, but was Quelched. violently put down, Yep. and the CCP from that point on made sure to emphasize control of the, the Chinese state and people from there on out, From there on, and yeah. maintained their political power through uh, Which economic meant, performance and right. legitimacy, It, I mean, whereas if the anything, Soviet Union... the Soviet this, this this disaster showed the Soviet Union was was I mean, incompetent essentially. Um. And, you know, the, yeah, so they were clearly on two different trajectories. Um, but, it, you know, it just shows, you know, what what was more than 30 years ago of what people are now. Um, so the next thing, so, that, you know, that kind of gets in, I think, actually gets into the grievances pretty well, because China, you know, at least economically was liberalizing. Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's questions about, how to integrate Russia in, from communism into a market economy. Uh, and that doesn't obviously go so well. So that kind of gets us then to the, I'd say, the national, would you say the Casey, the meat, the, I don't want to say mythos, but the, 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 the identity, No, the vision, yeah, na national identity, uh, conceptions about their place in the world. That's right. Um, Do you do you want to take Russia and I'll take China? sure. So what we have, uh, I have here an article from April 9th, 2004. Putin doubts expanded NATO meets new threats. Now, you might say this isn't really a favorable headline. I mean, it's not. Um, but One of the paragraphs in, you said, despite Moscow's opposition to the expansion of NATO, Mr. Putin said he hoped it would lead to the strengthening of trust in Europe and the entire world. He added that each country has the right to choose the form of security it considers to be most effective. I think that's kind of a departure from what we have now. And I think part of the reason for that And listen, from the perspective of, of NATO countries, enlargement makes sense because they still see Russia as a threat. And for Russia, and this is how you get back to the identity uh, of you know, the, the Russian psychology, the truth, maybe, or their special perspective, uh, they still see Eastern Europe as a part of uh, the Soviet Union or at least part of their former uh, bloc allies. So when you have more and more uh, countries leaving in orbit, uh, naturally, uh, you're going to look for other sources of perhaps of, of a backstop or of uh, perhaps even a new identity to consider before, uh, before you completely lose uh, your, um, 
before you completely lose your backyard, essentially. In order, in other words, move your back. In other words, move your backyard. You had an insight about Putin and his uh, role as a KGB agent and whether or not that ever goes away, right? Yes. He said, uh, he said, you know, there's no such thing as an ex-KGB agent. So and essentially, um, well, if he, you know, if, if he sees the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he called the collapse of the Soviet Union, the greatest geopolitical disaster of the, of the 20th century, um, He's not saying that because, you know, he's a communist. He's saying that in terms of land empire. And uh, one of the things is when you see those elements of your land empire drifting away, you're going to find, you're going to try and find new backstops. You're going to try and find, like I said, new identity, which we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to get to eventually. So uh, basically that's, I, I think that's kind of, the Russian mentality or the Russian perspective on, on the Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. And for China, we have to think about their government as an extension of millennia, uh, a a Chinese state that has existed for thousands of years where uh, disunity and fracturing has meant uh, civil wars, violence, the, the war and kingdoms period, right. uh, the, the civil war between the nationalists and the communists, uh, humiliation when the uh, uh, Qing dynasty was too feeble to resist uh, European humiliation over and over and over for a hundred years. Boxer rebellion. Absolutely. Uh, in in China, there you have a term called Chongzhang Wangguo, which means Middle Kingdom. And the idea was that China is the path, uh, path is the incorrect term, but the stepping stone between heaven above and the earth below. And the states on China's periphery are subject to the uh, sovereignty and rule of the emperor because that is the way of things. Uh, that That is just the, the, the hierarchical system that exists and that is the proper order of nature. You have to imagine the emphasis that China places on Confucian ideals, proper behavior, proper relationships. Uh, and if people are interested more in that, they can they can educate themselves on those topics. But the, the moral of the story is that China perceives itself as a hegemon with historical and le- uh, legitimate claim to China proper and the areas around it. You can, I mean, you can talk about the tribute system also. Uh, I mean, you could go on and on uh, of what, you know, how, how China has long uh, perceives itself. Um, actually, there's you know, there's an interesting take. Uh, there's been some scholars who have said, you know, you know, bodies of water are important. And in Russia's case, the Black Sea holds something about, you know, the Slavic identity. And you could also say, in some cases, uh, the South China Sea holds, uh, you know, a lot of uh, stuff about Chinese identity. In fact, a lot of the original islands from uh, what we know were actually originally discovered 
uh, you know, the ones that are currently contested today, uh, we're currently, um, we're, you know, currently contested where there's, you know, bases being built in them are, uh, found with them found by the Qing dynasty. So I think, uh, as we move forward, you, you see both these areas are in conflict and in a way, both China and Russia see themselves, uh, as victimized, uh, in places that are, shall we say, key to the, key to their national consciences, essentially. Sure. So in a, I don't want to say post-conflict world, but in a limited capacity to engage in conflict world, what are the avenues that China and Russia use to push back against what they perceive as these grievances? Right. So there's a few things uh, that they use to, that they perceive. Uh, So the first one is, especially after the Ukraine crisis, um, we saw China, or excuse me, Russia, uh, economically pivot to China. And what's one thing we know Russia has lots of? Oil. Right. Oil, natural gas. China became the biggest consumer of Russian oil, uh, second, uh, I, I think even bigger than the EU, although that might change with uh, Germany, but topic for another day. And this was the power of Siberia uh, pipeline project that uh, Russian and Chinese engineers worked on together. And then in terms of a security uh system, one that's actually uh, Chinese dominated, but Russia joined it way before uh, the crisis in Ukraine is the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, also sometimes known as the Shanghai Cooperation Council. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is essentially, I mean, it's, it's very much a Chinese dominated organization, again, in part because of the, tra- the trajectories that these two countries took, as Casey pointed out earlier. Um, so China, is, in many ways, Russia is actually the junior partner to China. But uh, in don't terms tell of, Putin that. Right. Don't tell Putin that. And uh, in terms of geopolitical necessity, um, you know, you could argue that in, in many ways, uh, being in, this, in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO is a better alternative uh, than you know, being has what he would perceive as being bullied by the West. So that's one way that they also uh, combat against that. And for for listeners who don't have uh, uh, prior knowledge of the the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it is a quasi uh, economic uh, political organization. It also has a uh, defense aspect to it, uh, defense cooperation, uh, yes. et cetera. It's like, it's like if, except there isn't actually a mutual defense aspect to, uh, to, yes, to the SDL. No. It's, like if, if, it's like if NATO didn't have Article 5, essentially, which mm-hmm. is even weird to think about. Um, but that's essentially the fallback position. It, the it's other fallback, frankly like uh, some of the Russian forums uh like the it's the CSTO collective security and uh trade collective, or? 
collective security treaty organization treaty organization um where it is a hegemon using an international forum as a way to dominate is the incorrect word but influence or take a role in the affairs of their junior partners and flex that economic and military muscle and and that i should note this is an emphasis on economic muscle so this is the emphasis on the economic muscle. Um, there's also other, you know, significant things that are happening outside of the economic muscle. Um, earlier in 2020, uh, China and Russia signed a ballistic missile cooperation deal, where essentially uh, they're both going to set up early warning systems in each of their countries, and they're also working on jointly developing ballistic missiles and that is huge like you have to understand like the level of trust that goes into two countries cooperating between ballistic missiles uh mm-hmm. by the way these are again these are two countries that were fight were skirmishing on the border not even what 60 years ago um that's very significant that's a, that's a huge turnaround um, so that's another, you know, in many ways, because of conflicts with the West, uh, Russia and China increasingly see each other as, uh, I don't want to say useful, but almost like useful, necessary and willing partners in each other as well. Sure. They are, it's that's the US. a partnership of convenience. I, I'm not suggesting that Russia is a peer to China. <laughs> Pardon me. But that russia is a near peer power yes absolutely and i would say yeah near peer. if you're looking to uh be a revisionist power against the liberal international order then you might as well do it together <laughs> who's your right you might you might as well band together and you know work out your differences later um this also kind of gets into russia's identity shift increasingly um like I said, if, if you're losing your old backyard, you need to find a new backyard. And that comes with a shifting identity. So lots of prominent Russian nationalists, uh, even though there's some skepticism among China, among you know Russian nationalists, it seems like the ones who really have the ear of the Kremlin are right now the Eurasianists or the neo-Eurasianists. Uh, obviously, there's... Dugan, who's kind of a kind of a character in and of himself, um, you know, he's controversial. Um, but then there's also other people. There's like Sergei Glaziev, who was Putin is still Putin's Eurasia chief Eurasia advisor. He was also Putin's economic advisor before he left that position. But he still is in the position of Eurasia advisor, and that's you know that's significant. And these people are you know they, they, these guys are essentially all about. Uh, Eurasian integration, among other things, which, you know, we don't even have time to get into um, stuff that's frankly, I think, pretty disturbing. But sure, these people are about Eurasian integration. And this and, is Eurasia uh, as a political entity, not a geographic descriptor, right? Well, Eurasia, I mean, in many ways, the concept is flexible, right? Like, in, in many ways, the concept of like Europe, well, what constitutes Europe? That's flexible. 
the concept of Eurasia is and also, yes, a political entity, but in many senses, who is in the, you know, who, who is in the political concept does not necessarily depend on the geography, right? Um, so that's, you know, that, that's a significant foreign policy distinction. And one of those things about that is multipolarism, which is increasingly rhetoric that you actually see used by the Kremlin and by the CCP uh, in, in terms of multipolarism. So in a way, you know, if you want to do a discourse study, in a way, it seems like the discourse has migrated to ma mainstream, uh, mainstream foreign policy. And of course, one of the things Eurasianism advocates for is, even as, as insane as it sounds, you know, it calls for an overhauling of Russian identity to be more Asian, essentially. So, you know, that's the, in a way that's the Russian reaction to, to, uh, to the West in its, you know, um, in, in conflicts it has with, with the West, at least in part. Mm -hmm. Sure. And you have, as multipolarism, you have China developing the uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the uh, China Development oh, Bank that has existed for a, a little bit, a while now. Uh, we will eventually discuss it later, but the uh, Silk Road, uh, New Silk Road, One Belt, One Road initiative is a massive, and it seems like the foreign policy world keeps describing developing new adjective to describe uh, things, but a geo-economic uh, project. Russia, of course, has a, a smaller project, uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, which is, you know, kind of like a, in many ways, a Russian response to the European Union. It's not as successful, but you see both of these, both of these institutions being built as a, you know, as a response to, as a response to the West, essentially. Yeah. And, and the idea is just that you're developing new alternative structures to chip away at that singular entity that is the the previous order right and china and russia have been pushed together in terms of having similar objectives and recognizing that they can help each other out on pushing for uh, a world in which they both see themselves as you know the key player opposite sure. the us Right. With, with different methods of doing so. Russia as Russia the landed empire, yes. the idea of the uh, sphere of influence is much more uh, immediate term thinking, whereas China long term is, is developing long term machinations on uh, absolutely Taiwan, the Sen Senkaku uh, Diao Islands, the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line. If it takes, you know, 50 years to make the nine dash line a reality that is a speck in the idea of being the heir of a 5,000 year old civilization. Exactly. So, you know, the perspectives are different, but in many ways, uh, they're, I don't know, attitudes and objectives also complement each other. So to wrap things up, I think we could, uh, go over, you know, some of the more future aspects of the relationship, maybe, um, sure. so, you know, uh, Xi was in uh, Moscow and uh, he said, you know, Putin is his best friend. And, uh, you know, you can find so many internet memes about, like, you know, the Putin Xi bromance or whatever. Um, you know, they're two personalities for sure. And I think, I mean, would you agree, like, 
part of the reason why these relations, no doubt, whether it be because of growing shared identity, pressure from the West, uh, you know, you'd have to at least say part of that equation too is because you know these two guys get along, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, they. I mean, they they certainly have a degree of uh, personal uh, interaction with each other that is, you know, quite friendly. They they think in similar manners, etc. And then, um, you know, this is who knows if this is actually going to happen. But you know, Russia and China sign an agreement on a lunar research station which is you know we'll see if it actually happens but it's it's significant in at least in terms of you know they're both thinking long-term cooperation um especially since some of the missions they're designing are supposed to happen in the 2030s uh so a lot might change between now and then who knows but you know the fact that they're you know even signing a memorandum of understanding for this is i think indicative of not necessarily a longer term planning that sounds too conspiratorial but mm-hmm. longer term outlooks i think longer term perspective that they both see i think they both increasingly think on the same wavelength and they both um they both obviously both think they need each other and in some cases maybe even think a, a shared identity and values that they promote worldwide yeah. is increasingly um increasingly part of their agenda long-term. I think it's fair to say that both countries are looking to the future. China has their equivalent of the U.S. military-industrial complex called military-civil fusion, where the the state and private entities and, and an authoritarian regime, you get to mix both of those concepts uh, in a soup. Yep. You have artificial intelligence, quantum computing, uh, AI technology, uh, etc., where it has military and civilian purposes, and when you when you're developing that and investing R and D budgets on the you know multi-decade timescale, you can get some impressive results. And I'm I'm sure they're imagining that Russia has a more militaristic power is developing you know hypersonic nuclear weapons, uh, yes. modernizing their nuclear weapons trio uh, triad you also say too russia and china have also uh, i mean we didn't even touch on this but russia and china i mean heavily i mean cyber for sure you mm-hmm. know talking yes. about the 2014 opm hack and by that was done by china and recently there was the solar winds hack that was done by russia um so you know that they're they're definitely uh they're advancing also in cyberspace as well. So they, you know, they both have those capabilities also. China, uh, Russia has developed, has demonstrated their capacity to operate in the cyberspace against uh, U.S., French, Ukrainian elections, uh, time and time again. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, this was a great discussion. I'm sure there are. <laughs> multiple podcast episodes to be had on these topics but let's go to the statistic of the day and i think you prepared this one yeah uh this kind of uh kind of think this shows how the mentality also i mean we talked about like change in identity also you know and how the increasingly you know cultural exchange between the two countries uh has increased 
75% of Russians view China favorably, with only 13% expressing a negative opinion. And according to a 2019 survey by the Pew Research Center, 71% of Russians have a favorable view of China, with only 18% expressing an unfavorable view of China. So I think those statistics speak for themselves in that the Russian and Chinese people uh, increasingly see solidarity with, between each other as well. And I think generally we'll have to see where that goes. Uh, but between, you know, between that, uh, military cooperation, um, both being in the SCO, and there are conflicts, let's make no mistake, they definitely have different ideas and different agendas and how to, you know, achieve goals and stuff. And they, they definitely, especially in like Central Asia, they'll hedge against each other. But I think for the most part, what we're seeing is that this relationship, uh, maybe this is a bold prediction. Maybe I'll be really wrong. I don't know. But I, I think the relationship is going to get better before it gets better. What a great line. All right. Well, with that, we will uh, close the episode. Uh, so I wish listeners a good morning, good evening, good afternoon, and good night. Uh, thank you for listening to us again. Have a great day. See you. See ya.